The heavens and the earth were alive with music. The voice of the Father, the harmony of the Son and the Spirit echoing in the deep. Their song brought into being the laws of physics, the weights and measures, the intricate mathematical equations and atoms and subparticles and E equals MC squared long before we were ever created. Their laughter boomed as he laid the foundations of the earth. The morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Joy was the song of the Father, Son, and Spirit as they bound together the cluster of Pleiades and loosed the belt of Orion. Joy was the song of God as he set the sun and the moon and the firmament of the heaven to give light on the earth. Joy was the song of the Father and the Son as the waters abounded with living creatures and the sky teemed with every kind of winged bird. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. The Lord God gave man the breath of life, and man joined in the song of joy. Until one day man chose discord. Through the blackness of sin, through sheer rebellion, man became unable to sing. But out of the purest love, that love which has always been, that love that created the very universe in which to sing the song of joy, the sun chose to step out, to live without harmony, in order to restore it for eternity. Incredibly, God proclaimed that his song of joy is not complete without us, so, for the joy that was set before him, the Son endured the cross. In the dark hours of his crucifixion and death, all music fell silent. No morning stars sang. No angels rejoiced. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saint. The Father and the Spirit grieved. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. There was no melody until the stone was rolled back and the sun arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran out to greet him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son cried out,
There is a kind of love that can only come after loss. There is a depth of love that can only arise after death. Mary came to the tomb that day to mourn. And if you have your scriptures, turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. We will skip ahead in our exposition. And we will notice something different about the Gospel of John than about all of the other Gospels. And that is this, that although there were many people at the tomb, John chose to focus on Mary. Now let me tell you a few things about Mary Magdalene. Tradition has it that Mary Magdalene loved Jesus most because her sins were scarlet. The Bible says, he who forgives the most will love the, will, is forgiven the most will love the most. And, and, and there is a tradition that links Mary with that harlot that washed Jesus' feet with her tears. There is an actual scripture that describes Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 2, I believe it is that says when Jesus was healing people, that there were seven spirits that came out of Mary. That is seven evil spirits, and that's a perfect number. And so, therefore, she in her sin was very dead. But she had this relationship with Jesus that I have a hunch was the first time in her life she was ever loved by a man who didn't want to use her. She was ever respected by a man. 
And so therefore, there was this wonderful relationship. And when Jesus was taken away from her, she was devastated. She was so hurt, she couldn't wait until the dawn broke to come to the tomb. And it says in John 20, chapter, uh, John chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark. And she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, the Bible says, and said, They've taken away the Lord, and we do not know where they've laid him. Well, you know the scene that takes place after this. The, the two disciples run. Of course, the one that loved Jesus is the, was the fast one, but Peter arrives, and he's the brave one, and he goes right into the tomb. And he sees something that is very remarkable. It says in verse 6 that he beheld the linen wrappings, wrappings lying there. And, and, and the, the, the original language here means still in their folds. That is to say that that they were there as if the body had evaporated and they had just sunk down. Except for, it says in verse 7, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lined with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now this told them something immediately. It told them that the body was not stolen. It told them that the grave was not robbed because neither friend nor enemy would ever unwrap a body before you take it. No one wanted direct contact with a dead body. That was, you would be richly unclean, or if you weren't a believer, it would be at least gross. And so therefore, you didn't unwrap the body. That's not what happened. Now the only person in that tomb was Jesus. And mothers, it may be a bargaining tool for you that Jesus tidied up the room before he left. <laughs> the Bible says that the head wrapping was very neatly rolled and put into place before he left. But here is the further point. They saw that and they knew what had happened. They knew that he had been resurrected. They didn't fully understand it, but they knew what had happened. They saw and believed, the Bible says. And so what did they do? Typical men. Went home. Saw it, see ya. You know? <laughs> So recorded. Thank you very much. And the Bible says they, they didn't go home. They, they went, it, it, it says they went home, but what it, what it literally says in Greek is they, they went to themselves. That is, this is where they lived, but they, they went off by themselves. But not Mary. Mary needed more than that. Mary loved in a different way. And Mary had suffered such loss that even if it only meant being near the body, that's what she wanted. And so, the Bible says in verse 11, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Well... Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Let's talk about those few verses just for a moment. Because I want you to know two things happened that day. 
One was objective and one was subjective. One was a, one was a reality that all could see and, and another was a reality that only an individual could feel. Tim Stafford, who writes for Christianity Today, says that he, he has a pastor friend who loves to teach confirmation class. And one day he asked that pastor friend how he did that. And he said, well, I, I, you know, I, and he gave him the rundown. And they said, at the end of it, he said, I, I do something I think is very interesting. I say, you know, I, I bring in this jar full of marbles. And I have them guess how many marbles there are in this jar. And then I do something else. I make a list of all their favorite songs. I have them tell me what their favorite songs are. And we make a list. And then I ask them this question. Is your religion more like guessing how many marbles are in a jar or what your favorite song is, listing your favorite song? And he said to the person, they almost all say, well, it's more like having a favorite song. And he said, you know, my heart sinks because my fear is they won't understand that what happened to Christ was an objective reality, whether you believe it or not, whether you cotton to it or not, whether it's part of your heart or not. There are so many marbles in a jar, and you either come close or you don't, and they exist whether you believe in them or not. And that was what happened that day. There was a physical resurrection. I know that there are people who say, well, you know, it was a spiritual kind of thing, and you know, it's a little analogy, and it kind of gives you this hope for kind of a nebulous life afterwards. Don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but kind of a nice little thing. No. There was a physical resurrection, whether you believe in it or not. Christ bodily rose from the grave, whether you can estimate how that happened or not. And it's available for us all, whether you have faith in it or not. There was an objective reality that day. But there was not just an objective reality. Mary had this thing going on in her heart. Some of you know what it's like to have the person you love most leave you. Some of you know the grief. Some of you know what it's like to keep looking back at what was and wish it could turn out differently. Some of you know that. Some of you know what it's like to continue looking in the tomb so much that you can't see the future that's behind you because you have your back to it. Some of you know that grief magnifies the past, confuses the present, and clouds the future. And some of you in here today need to turn around. Some of you need to understand that your future is not in your past. And you need to turn around to the Lord that is living. That day, Mary did turn around, but she didn't understand what it was to have a Lord that was living because she didn't yet know what it was like, the, the difference between a religion and a relationship. And if she could just get that body back to where it belonged, then she could at least be near the body. And so she turned around and she talked to Jesus. Listen to what it says. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away... Tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. And do, you, do you get the irony of this? She's talking to the living Lord, and she's saying to him, if you can find his body, I'll stuff him back where it belongs. 
I'll put him back in a tomb where I can have him, where I need him to be. There are many people who would rather have a God whom they know exactly where he is and exactly how to understand him than they would face a God who comes up with all kinds of surprises that isn't, they aren't ready for yet. And that's exactly where Mary was that day. She wasn't just clouded by tears. She was clouded by just the desire to have what she used to have. But Christ had more for her than that. And so, one word brought her to reality. Jesus said to her, Mary, (laughs) some of you remember the day when God called your name. You remember what it was like You remember understanding that God doesn't just exist for everybody. God exists for you. You remember understanding that that it isn't just an objective reality. It's a personal call. You can remember that sense. And you can remember the sense, what it felt like. You had all your life felt like you had been made for something special, and that day you understood what it was. You had been made for God, and you knew life would never be the same after that. Mary knew what that was, and she cried out, Rapponi. And once, once she cried that out, she did something very unique. She dove for him. Now, he doesn't say that. But the very next words you hear Jesus say is, stop clinging to me. That's what it says, stop clinging to me. Now, why did Jesus say that? Was he afraid to be touched physically? Obviously not. Just a little while later, he would say to Thomas, hey, check it out. Put your fingers in the holes. It's a physical body. He wasn't afraid to be touched physically. He knew what she was trying to do when she grabbed onto him. She was trying to reestablish the relationship they had had in the past. She was trying to hold on to that wonderful, physical, close companionship. And he knew that that kind of relationship was not to be anymore. Because he knew she needed more than that. And that's the reason he had died for her. And that's the reason he died for you and me, because we need more than that. And so he said these words to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Let me talk about that just for a moment. There are two kinds of relationships that we were made for, One was a physical relationship, is a physical relationship. We're physical people. And we love that kind of close companionship. You know, we start out, we want to be hugged and mauled by our parents. And and we want want cousins and friends and wrestle around. And we love just the closeness and the gilly, huggy stuff. We like that. And we progress all of our life having this, this wonderful companionship. Until ultimately we have in our husband or our wife, hopefully, that companionship and that physical closeness. And that means a great deal to us. 
until we come to a place in our life where we suffer such devastating loss that nobody can help. There isn't a human being on this earth that can go into our heart and make it all right. And then we need another kind of relationship. Jesus knew that only his coming and only his dying and only his being in a different form than a man would allow us to have that. We need them both. But one is much more vital than the other. I love the story about the little girl I read. It's a, it was in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And her, her name was Katie. She was three years old. Just had this little, little blip of an article. Her mother took her into the pediatrician because she had had the flu. Mother wanted to make sure she was all right. And so she took her to this pediatrician. And this pediatrician happened to love kids. I don't know if you've ever known, you know, doctors have different personalities. But I, I knew a pediatrician in Indianapolis where he was more of a kid than all of his patients put together. I mean, he just loved kids. And he was a kid. And he was so playful and so on and so forth. Well, that's what this guy was like. So he took her into the pediatrician. She, he, and he, and, and, oh, I'm sorry, she, uh, the mother, took her in and, and set her on that, you know, that dumb examination table with a paper on it, you know. You know, Katie's sitting up there like this, you know. And, and the pediatrician comes into the room. And he's just like all excited. And he gets out the little ear looker in her, you know, and he, and he goes toward her ear and she says, now, he says, when I look in your ear, am I going to see Big Bird in there? And she looks at him and says, no. <laughs> well, he looks in her ear, you know, oh, I think I see Big Bird. And then he gets out the tongue depression. He says, okay, say, ah, and he looks at He said, now when I look down your throat, am I going to see Cookie Monster? She goes, now. Then he gets out the stethoscope, and he says, when I listen to your heart, am I going to hear Barney? She'd finally had enough, thought she'd better set him straight. She said, no, Jesus is in my heart. Barney's on my underwear. <laughs> I love that story. Let me tell you why. Because to me, it illustrates the two kind of relationships we have. You know, it's good to have close relationships. <laughs> it is. They make you feel warm. They make you feel fuzzy. They make you feel included. They make you feel happy. They make you feel buoyant. But all of you who are grown up know there come times in your life where that's not enough where you are in such pain and such loss that no matter how many friends you have around and no matter how much they love you, you've got to have more than that. You've got to have something inside of you that can bring you back from death, that can bring you back from grief. There are relationships that are companion relationships, but there is a relationship that's a resurrection relationship. There is a relationship that will... They'll make you feel warm. But there's another kind of relationship that'll make you arise. And that's the relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why he died. Now, one thing we have to do before we go on to the ultimate benefit for us is realize what this day meant for him. Every Easter, or first fruits, we ought to call it. Easter's a pagan term, but 
We'll, we'll live with it. Every first fruits. We all, we, we all come and say, okay, what does the resurrection mean for me? And that's, that's okay. We all want to know those implications. But let's just take one moment and understand what it meant for Jesus. Do you know what it was for Jesus to come down and live with us? Do you know the kind of relationship that he had with his father before he came? That they were literally one. Do you know what it was for him to not count equality or closeness with God a thing to be grasped, but to empty himself literally and come down and take on the form of a servant and live for 33 years without the kind of relationship with his father that he had always had? Do you know what it's like to have the sins of the world loaded onto you until you cry out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew he had to do it to fulfill Scripture. Those words are the first verse of Psalm 22, and they are the prediction of the fulfillment of that psalm. And when Jesus uttered those words, he was saying, I am fulfilling what you need to be close to God. But he also meant them. So much had our sin separated him from his father. Do you know what it was to come out of the grave that day and say, don't hold on to me, I'm going to see my dad? Do you, can, you, can you guess what he felt? He didn't come out and say, go tell my brethren I'm resurrected. No, he said, I go to my father. Finally, I go to my father. And I love him so much, there's no room for anything else. And while he was yet afar away, the father saw him. I'd read a, a story one time written by Janice Burns about her mother. The story was Sarah's song. And in that, she was listing the attributes about her mother that she had always loved. And when they asked her what was the attribute she loved the most, she said, how my mother loved my father. She said, I had never seen anything like that. She said, you know, when we were kids, we always wanted all the love that our parents had. We wanted to be the center of the world. <laughs> we wanted to be chosen. And we were chosen by both of them. But not in the way they chose each other. There was something magnificent, something inseparable. And that day, Jesus said, I go to my Father. And then he said this, tell my brothers that. He said, and that was the first time in the Gospel of John, he's recorded as saying, my brothers, I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What did they hear when Mary came back to them, announcing, I have seen the Lord? What did they hear? Let me ask the, the worship team to come out while I'm asking you this question. What do you hear? 
when you hear the words, he's risen. What, what difference does that make to you? What difference did it make to them? Some of you may hear, because you're living in sin and you know you're living in sin, that you don't need to live there anymore. You know the character of sin is death. You know the emptiness. You know the sense of non-fulfilledness. You, you, you know all of that. And you're thinking, I don't need to live here anymore. If Jesus has really paid for my sins, if he really offers me a life that's beyond any failure, any loss, any grief I've ever had, I can live there. Some of you who are Christians know what it is to believe in Christ, but yet suffer pain. So much pain you can hardly move. But yet, in the midst of that, you understand he's going to come and he's going to carry you out. I heard a story. I'll close with this. True story. Uh, two young men growing up together. Some of you remember these old, old childhood buddies. And boy, they went through all through school together. They, uh, uh, they went through uh, junior high school and high school and college together. And at the end of their college, World War II broke out. And they joined the armed forces together. And they went to the same front, and they were fighting the same enemy together. And during this one battle, it was just horrendous. Um, they were getting pummeled. They were getting beaten so badly, and the commanding officer um, kind of separated them. And he, and he told Philip, which was the younger one, to go uh, in this platoon and kind of flank the enemy. But it was, a, it was a failed strategy right away. And so the commanding officer said, sounded the retreat, said, we've got to get out of here. And Jim, the oldest one, said, I can't go. Philip's still out there. A couple of, if, he, if he stays out there a couple of minutes, he's going to be dead. I've got to go after him. And the commanding officer rightly said, I can't let you do that. I ordered you to stay here because it would be suicide for you to go out there. But Jim could not, not go. And so he disobeyed the order, ran out into the field of battle, crying out Philip's name out loud. And sometime later, he came back holding the lifeless form of his friend. And when he got back into their position, the commanding officer came to him and said, I told you. It was a foolish risk. It was a waste of time. And Jim looked at him and said, Oh, no, it wasn't. Because I got there before he died. And he looked at me before he died and he said, I knew you'd come. There is a kind of love that only comes after loss. There is a depth of hope that only comes when you let Christ carry you from your field of death.